the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or estate law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622 and Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. And for those of you who don't know, our intro song there is uh, David Kincaid. You know, he used to do a lot of Irish stuff. I understand he's only doing rock stuff right now, but check him out on Hornet <laughs> The Field Brandos. Music. Yeah, check him out. I always love his music, whether it's the, the old Irish stuff, which I really love, and his, <laughs> his, his rock stuff. Now, tonight we're going to have uh, an interesting show. Most of you know the first part of the show we do estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show we talk about history, politics, religion, nostalgia, whatever, and we're going to be talking about politics and history tonight. Uh, we have two ladies who wrote a book on the Indianapolis and if you remember Jaws, you know, and Robert Shaw, you know, he's, you know, in, in the film, he plays a guy who was a survivor of the Indianapolis. And, of course, he's a, he, he was a great actor, and that was a great soliloquy that uh, he did in that movie. So there, we're going to be talking about the real event, though, of the USS Indianapolis and one of the great tragedies in American naval history. And we're, cu- we're a little cut off on estate planning elder law because— Dinesh D'Souza's movie's coming out this weekend, or has come out this weekend, and we we want to talk about that for a minute with Dinesh, and, and you know, I, he deserves a lot of our support. He's had, you know, he is a guy who's not afraid to speak out, and a guy who's gone to jail for, you know, his conviction, so I think he deserves a, a lot of support. So we're going to be talking to Dinesh D'Souza, and at the end of the show, talking about his new film, Death of a Nation. Now, I guess let's try to get to a email question quickly. Um, Beth, what's the email question? Hello, Mr. Connors. I caught the tail end of your show on 570 AM this morning regarding questions being answered with respect to wills. I am single with no children and would like to have a will prepared, but don't have someone who I can appoint as an executor. I would like to know what, what my alternatives are. Thank you. Okay. Now that is a good question. And so Dolores, there's, uh, you know, a couple of things that you can think about. Now, ordinarily, 90, 95% of the time, the executor of your will is going to be family members, spouse, son, daughter, uh, trusted nephew or niece, but that may not be available in this case. So who can be your executor? And, and what is an executor? Maybe I should say first. 
The executor is the person you choose to wrap up your business, legal, financial matters after you're gone. It's the person in charge of your estate when you pass away. Very important appointment, and that's why everybody should have a will, if nothing else, to have an executor. Now, who can be your executor? Really, any person over 18, ordinarily a U.S. citizen not convicted of a crime. So there's a broad pool out there. Now, okay, you're going to say, well, that's easy enough to say, but who can I choose? You can choose your best friend. You can choose your accountant. Uh, you can choose a, you know, a cousin or, or whatever, a reliable cousin. If you're leaving assets to charity, we, Connors and Sullivan, could act as your executor. Let's say for the most part, if you're going to leave your assets to charity or church or something like that, then we can step in and help. Ordinarily, if you're going to leave assets to your family or your friends, you would have one of your family or friends be the executor. But if you're leaving it to charity, a lot of times people in charities can't really, you know, they can't pay for your funeral. Not that they can't pay for your funeral, but they can't arrange your funeral. They can't do things like that. And, and we do do that at Connors and Sullivan if you want to ever give us a call about that. Um, so executor is very important. Everybody should have an executor. Uh, 90, 95% of the time, it should be family, son, daughter, trusted nephew or niece, whatever. Of course, your spouse, too. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough uh, airs one of our questions. So let's replay Kevin's question. Every single week right here at Kevin McCullough Radio, we make the promise that uh, Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan Law Firm will come and answer one of your questions as it relates to estate law and elder care. And he rejoins us today. Mike, the question this week comes from Mary. She says, I have only one daughter, but she's not capable of handling money. I want to leave everything I have to her, but I'm afraid she'll spend it all in one month. What can I do? Thanks, Mary. Mike Connors, what would you advise Mary to do? Well, the answer is simple. We set up a trust for her daughter. Now, the, the, the problem will be who's going to be the trustee, who's going to manage the money for Mary's daughter. That's going to be the problem. But, you know, it's, it's easy enough. It's an easy problem to solve. We set up a trust. Somebody else controls the money. And then Mary chooses somebody else to control the money for her daughter. In, in some cases, depending on her daughter's age, maybe we use a bank or a trust company, but that gets expensive. You, in some cases, we could use a law firm, or, or maybe there's a nephew or niece or cousin out there who can manage it for uh, for Mary's daughter. The answer's simple. Sometimes the solution is not as simple because who's going to be the trustee? That could be a hard question. And if she wants to know more about uh, just how effective that is and how easy it is to do, she needs to call uh, just the same as all of you would. Uh, call Connors and Sullivan and talk to Mike's team. He's got convenient locations throughout the boroughs and in the city and is eager to speak with you. Also ask about their seminars uh, for how to plan your estate as well. The number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And you can also submit one of your questions to be answered right here on Kevin McCullough Radio. Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com or call 718-238-6500. That's 718 238 6,500. All right. Well, thanks again, Kevin. Uh, all right. We're going to be talking about the USS Indianapolis. Beth, I think you mentioned this book to me to start. I saw there are two ladies that were, um, there was going to be a reunion of the survivors, and they got to speak with them. They went to the reunion, and um, it was so, it was such an important thing. They, they just wanted to get out the true story. Um, so they were great. I heard them Fox News one morning, um, but they were doing interviews around. So I'm glad I'm glad we got to talk to them. OK, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to Robert Shaw from the movie Jaws. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. 
and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, September 25th at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03 Cross Bay Boulevard, Howard Beach, Queens at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m., then in Maspeth, Queens on Wednesday, September 26th at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. And finally at The Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard, Bayside, Queens, on Friday, September 28th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. 6500. That's Connors and Sullivan. 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady. Just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. 1,100 men went into the water. The vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer, you know? You know that when you're in the water, chief? You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We all saw that great movie, Jaws, and in it, a character played by Robert Shaw talks about his experience on the Indianapolis. And some people might think that's a little bit of fiction, but our two guests, Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek, can tell us what the true story is. How are you guys doing today? Very good, thank you. Great, great Mike, thank you. The Indianapolis, you guys have a book out, The True Story of the Worst Sea Disaster in U.S. Naval History and the 50-Year Fight to Exonerate an Innocent Man. First, Captain Quint Jaws, how close to the truth was his rendition of the Indianapolis disaster? There are a few of the facts, the number of crew that were aboard and the fact that it wasn't a secret mission that are a little bit off. But really, the most important thing is that it grasps the sentiment and the feeling that most of the survivors had, you know, surviving that, going through that ordeal and how it affected them the rest of their lives. So on that, I would say it was quite on point. Now, he talks about sharks and fighting off sharks. That was true? 
absolutely true. That's probably the most famous part of the suffering that the men went through during their five nights and four days in the water before the Navy discovered they were missing. Um, to me, I mean, there are a bosun's mate named Eugene Morgan. He said he was uh, floating some distance away, and he saw 15 men clinging to a floater net, and about 10 sharks hit it all at once, and within moments, there was nothing left. I mean, that's just horrific when you think about it. Let's back up just a second. The Indianapolis, what was its mission? The mission that it's, I guess, most recognized for was the task with carrying the components of the atomic bomb. So prior to this, she was the Fifth Fleet flagship. That means Spruance commanded most of the end of the Pacific War from her decks. So when she was hit by a kamikaze plane in March of 1945, the day before Okinawa started, she was then, it kind of was a domino effect where she was sent home, she was under repair, and then because she was available and she was one of the fastest ships out there, she was tasked with carrying components of the atomic bomb to Tinian so that that could be dropped on Hiroshima in early August. It drops off the components of the bomb. What happens next? Well, the, the, the mission is no longer classified after that. Going to Tinian was like a, a spy novel. The super spy named Major Robert Furman, who was actually the head of intelligence for the Manhattan Project, was the Army officer, along with Captain James Nolan, who shepherded the components of the bomb aboard Indianapolis to Tinian. And uh, we were able to tell that story for the first time. After Tinian... Uh, Captain Charles B. McVeigh III, the captain of Indianapolis, takes the ship back to Guam, and then they set off uh, on the 28th of July, 1945, on a routine sail across the Philippine Sea. So that would be from Guam, uh, almost due west to Leyte, Philippines. And it was considered at that time, that area, the backwater of the war. It was considered the rear. It was considered boring. And in fact, um, because of that, no escort ship was sent with Captain McVeigh, and he was also assigned a speed of advance of only 15 and a half knots or so, which was clearly within the range of enemy submarines. In addition, he was not given intelligence uh, that the higher-ups knew about that there were four Japanese attack submarines operating in those waters. So what happens? So just after midnight and on July 30th, 1945, a Japanese submarine, I-58, commanded by Matsuchora Hashimoto, I can't, I'm sorry, Hashimoto, um, fired six torpedoes. Two of them struck the Indianapolis. One hit at the 12th frame, so essentially blowing off the bow and then the second hit just before the forward stack. So this was right where the ammunitions were. This was officer's country. This is where the stewards all slept. And having been just after midnight, you know, most of the men are sleeping in their quarters or had just been relieved from duty, were lying down for the night. They were, because of the temperatures in the Pacific at that time, they were sleeping half naked or some naked, and the torpedo struck, and within 12 minutes, the ship was sunk. And so there wasn't power. The communications were shot out by the torpedoes. There was no way to communicate to land or each other, for that matter. They couldn't really successfully announce abandoned ship. They could only do it by mouth from man to man. And so these men had to get off the ship very, very quickly in the middle of the night. Most of them ended up in the water without life rafts, without life jackets. They had to swim for hours before they could find something to cling on to. And then for the next five nights and four days, 
they were doing everything they could to survive while swimming in the middle of the Pacific with the Navy not even knowing they were out there. Now, why did the Navy not know they were out there? It was, as Sebastian Younger brought into the American vernacular, it was a perfect storm. It was a perfect storm of lack of communication. It was a perfect storm because the ship was so badly damaged that no SOS we don't know if an SOS got off the ship, but we know that no shore station received it. And also, there was a perfect storm of incompetence on both sides of the Pacific. Uh, one in the case of officers who really had become complacent and a bit cavalier on the Guam side. And on the Leyte Philippines side, in the case of a, of a young lieutenant, he had been told that if combatant, a ship, if combatant ships arrived, he did not need to make an arrival report. And so this lieutenant, whose name was Gibson, who had received a poor performance evaluation for his being such a scatterbrain, he thought, well, if I don't need to report it when a combatant ship arrives, I guess I don't need to report it when a combatant ship fails to arrive. And so that, combined with the, uh, the lack of intelligence and communications, is why the Navy was not aware that Indianapolis was missing. Also, just to add one point, in sort of fairness or to have a leavening effect, we have to remember that this was the very, very end of the Pacific War, and all of the United States' focus and resources were pointed at the Japanese home islands. So we uh, were on the verge of invading Japan, and that's where everybody's attention was. How many men were on the Indianapolis when the torpedoes there were 1, hit? 1,195 men aboard. There was one passenger who was just transporting from one island to the next, and then the rest were crew. Um, they believe that about 300 went down with the ship, putting 900 men alive in the water. And so by the time they were rescued, there was only 316 survivors. All right, so there are 900 men in the water. What's happening to them? What are they going through? Oh, it was a nightmare. I mean, I've read a lot of fiction, and I haven't read any fiction that stands up to this nightmare. First, it's, as Sarah said, just after midnight, and before the ship sank, uh, the engineering officer pumped a bunch of fuel oil out into the water to try to shift ballast away from the, the list, in other words, to, to stop the ship from tipping over. So there was this gooey layer of um, fuel oil on the water that was so thick that it had to be heated to be transferred. So you can imagine it's very tarry. So the men are absolutely covered in it. And as the days and nights pass, they suffer um, exposure. Many die of their initial wounds from the blast. They suffer, they're suffering dehydration, and so many of them begin to drink salt water, which is an absolutely horrific way to die because your brain cells tear loose and your brain short circuits, and uh, some men became insane as a result of that. There were, of course, the sharks, um, relentless, uh, the shark attacks went on and on and on. And then as a combination of all these circumstances uh, converged, uh, many of the men began to lose their minds and attack each other. Well, how did these guys get eventually rescued, the ones that do survive? It's really quite by accident or providence. Um, there was a pilot by the name of Adrian, I'm sorry, Lieutenant Wilbur Gwynn, who was flying a routine patrol. He was testing out a new antenna, and the antenna kept breaking off his PV-1 Ventura. Um, he went back to the back of the plane to see if he could work with it, do something, and at that exact moment, he looked down, and he saw an oil slick. And, you know, the ocean from his height, he can see 400 square miles. So for him to look down at the exact perfect moment to see this on, you know, the day where the ocean looks like 
glass was almost impossible. But he did. He saw this oil slick, and he initially thought it was an enemy submarine. And so he ordered his crew to open the bomb bay. They were circling back to fire upon, you know, this, what they thought was a submarine, and they saw heads in the water. And he realized something else is going on here. And at this point, he still doesn't even know whether they're American or Japanese because there's been nothing reported as far as ship loss or any kind of battle or anything of that nature. So he calls it into his command, ducks on the pond, meaning men in the water. And flights start coming out. Our other planes start arriving on the scene. One gentleman by the name of Adrian Marks has a PBY, Catalina, which is a kind of an amphibious plane, but it's not intended to land on high swells, and the water here now is 12-foot swells. So, But he sees men in the water being attacked by sharks and dying right before his eyes, and he says he has to do something. So risking his life and against protocol, he actually lands his plane and starts taxiing around, and that's when they first identify that these are men from the Indianapolis and he's able to save 53 men by pulling them into the cockpit, by, you know, putting them actually up on the wings. And the plane was never able to be salvaged after that because of the impact from the landing. So they did scuttle it, but they were able to keep the men alive, 53 of them alive, long enough where they most likely would not have survived. Because you have to remember, too, the closest land is 280 miles away. So even after calling this in, it's about a 12-hour journey for the closest ships to arrive on the scene to start rescuing people. So what he did was kind of miraculous in that he saved these men, identified they were Americans, and then the other ships are, you know, called to this site as quickly as possible. We're going to need to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're talking to Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek about the Indianapolis. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Adult stem cell research is nothing new. It has been going on for decades and, in fact, has proven helpful in treating various diseases. In the process of this research, nobody has to be killed in order to obtain the stem cells. Embryonic stem cell research, on the other hand, only began in 1998 and does involve killing a new human life in order to obtain the cells. The number of diseases that have been successfully treated with embryonic stem cells is zero. They have shown no medical benefit. And even if they did, such activity is immoral. The end does not justify the means. Adult stem cells have treated various forms of leukemia, sickle cell disease, anemia, and carcinoma. Embryonic stem cells have succeeded in nothing. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. 
now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We've been talking about one of the greatest naval tragedies in the history of the United States, the USS Indianapolis. We're talking to Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek. What are some of the stories from the survivors? Oh, there are so many. One of the ones that came to my mind as Sarah was talking about Adrian Mark so courageously landing his plane in the water is that there was a a young officer named Harlan Twible, an ensign. Um, he had been in the Navy active duty for all of two weeks when he was sunk on this ship. And uh, he was in in a group and trying to keep it together. And as Adrian Marks, uh, after Adrian Marks landed in the water, this other young ensign named Thomas Brophy struck out swimming to try to get to Marx's plane. And Twible was saying, don't go, come back here, Ensign, that's an order, because he could see that Brophy was so, so weak. And sure enough, Brophy faltered about halfway to the plane, even though it was maybe 100 yards off, and he drowned, uh, even on the cusp of rescue. And he wasn't the only one. There were many uh, men in the water who tried to swim to Marx's plane, but overestimated their strength and ended up uh, drowning instead. You know, some of the uh, some of the rescue stories are um, really some of the most inspiring in the book. I think not just because of rescue, but because of bravery, because of of men doing little odd things for one another. For example, there were two sailors. One's name was Lebo, and the other's name was Hirschberger. And Lebo, uh, during while the two men were on the ship had sort of taken Hirschberger under his wing because Hirschberger had a a gap in his smile and some of the other sailors would make fun of him. And so Lebo told him, you know, if you don't stop picking on Hirschberger, I'm going to let you have it. You know, I'm going to clobber you. So he had protected Hirschberger on the ship. Well, fast forward to the sinking and the rescue. It's the fourth day in the water and Lebo has started to lose his marbles a little bit, and he sees all of these things uh, falling down from the rescue planes, rafts, uh, water casks, um, little uh, sauna buoys and things like that, and he takes off swimming toward one of these items that have fallen in the water, and Hirschberger swims after him and pulls him back to the floater net and says, what are you doing? And Lebo says to him, wow, did you see all that stuff falling down? I saw a box of airplane parts. We can build ourselves an airplane and fly home. Of course, he had lost his mind, and, and Hirschberger looks at him, and he, and he sees that Lebo has lost it, and he says to him, Cletus, the sun is going down. Let's wait until tomorrow and do it. And so Lebo says, okay, and it was just that simple thing that saved his life. Otherwise, he probably would have swum off and drowned like the other men. You know, uh, you know. Today, everybody talks about post-traumatic stress syndrome. What happened to these guys after the war, or after the, they, they were saved? Well, this was a, a very different generation, and this was long before PTSD was something they were diagnosed with. So these men really were ordered to go home and start life as usual. So they got jobs, they moved on, they didn't talk about it. You know, a lot of them suffered what we now know as PTSD, but 
they dealt with it with alcohol. They dealt with it, you know, by not being able to hold down jobs, but they tried to fight through it because they didn't have assistance for it or have any way to identify that this was actually something affecting their life. But, you know, some committed suicide, um, including Captain McVeigh, who perhaps held the, the heaviest burden of all the members of the crew with the loss of the vessel and, you know, going on to what took place with the court-martial and being blamed, you know, officially for the loss of the vessel. But these men, for the majority of them, just came home, got to work, fought the good fight, and, you know, started families and just never, ever talked about it again for probably 30 years after the sinking. Okay, you mentioned Captain McVeigh. Who was he and what happened to him after the disaster? Captain McVeigh, at the time of this incident, was an up-and-coming officer. His father was an admiral. His father had fought in the Spanish-American War and had commanded ships and ultimately commanded Washington Naval Yard. And um, he was he was kind of a tough customer. And um, he used to give his son... Charles B. McVeigh III, the commander of Indianapolis, a lot of grief. You know, he he wanted to he wanted his son to cover himself with glory, as the father had done, and so McVeigh III was doing that. He had been the skipper of an oiler. He had been the uh, executive officer of the Luzon. He had um, fought in China, and he had actually won a silver star in the Solomon Islands um, the pre the year previous to him taking command of Indianapolis. So he was a man on the rise. Also, he was the chair of the Joint Intelligence Staff in Washington, D.C., um, as his command right before he took uh, took over the command of Indianapolis. So um, when, he w when his ship was selected to carry the bomb parts to Finian Island, everyone you know, knew that he was a great man for the job a man who was probably on his way to Commodore and then Admiral. But after the, after the ship sank, uh, it was, we have to remember that by the time uh, it was announced that Indianapolis had sunk, the war was already over. And so at that point, there were many, many people who, had they been drug out into court, would have gone down in this whole episode. And the fleet admiral, Admiral Ernest J. King, did not want that to happen. At least that's our analysis. And therefore, they decided to pin the entire thing on Captain McVeigh, and they court-martialed him. What was he convicted of? There were two charges that were brought up against him. The first was failure to call abandoned ship. And as I had mentioned earlier, the power was out. So you know, they tried to use that as a tactic to say he didn't do his duty, but there were so many reports that came in that said he passed it word of mouth. That was thrown out pretty quickly. Um, the second was failure to zigzag. And, you know, they were reaching for any charge that they could find to go after him legitimately. And zigzagging was a protocol that was used for submarine evasion. But by this point in the war, this was standard practice. The Japanese actually took it into account when attacking United States vessels. So even when Commander Hashimoto came to the courtroom and was asked to testify, and you know, this was the, the country was in outrage about the fact that a Japanese, you know, criminal as they called him at the time, would be allowed to testify against one of our own officers. But he came in and he testified and said, it doesn't matter that the ship was zigzagging or not, I would have hit it anyway. 
but the translator didn't translate that properly. And Hashimoto didn't know English well enough to be able to object. And so that was one of his regrets. He went home and told the family. But still, regardless of this, this was the charge that they got him for because he wasn't, you know, he should have zigzagged and he wasn't. And really, with the information, or actually the lack of information that he had, it was up to his discretion, and he saw no real reason to continue zigzagging. You know, this was, again, the backwaters of the war. There were no threats, to, as far as he knew. So why upset the, you know, the pace and the, the routing that they had? You know, uh, zigzagging technique does kind of upset the ship, literally upsets the balance as the men go back and forth. So they had just done a high-speed run, pushing their ship at 32 knots for, I believe, 10 days. And so now he was kind of letting them do a relaxing journey after this last mission, and there was no real reason, as far as he knew, to do otherwise. But this ultimately was the charge brought up against him and what he was charged with when he was court-martialed. Now, from the subtitle of the book, The 50-Year Fight to Exonerate Him, what happened? What, what Well, as Sarah mentioned, um, most of the men did not talk about this for years afterwards. Then in 1958, a man named Richard Newcomb, who was an Associated Press news editor, was the first to recognize that um, this really was an injustice that was done to Captain McVeigh. And he wrote about that in a book called Abandoned Ship. Two years later, the men had their first reunion, and over 200 of them uh, came to the city of Indianapolis, the ship's namesake city. And one of the things that they decided to do was to fight for justice on behalf of Captain McVeigh. To a man, none of them believed that the sinking was Captain McVeigh's fault. Um, and what we found in our research was that the Navy knew that it wasn't his fault. And uh, we found that laid out in bullet point fashion in a memo from the Inspector General of the Navy at the time to Fleet Admiral King. In any case, uh, the survivors banded together. Over the years, they did a number of things. They visited Congress. They wrote letters. Captain McVeigh's son, Kimo McVeigh, wrote a letter to President Reagan and to Vice President H George H.W. Bush. And every time that they did this, they were told that there was nothing that they could do, that the court-martial was legally sound and the conviction was just. They continued their fight on into the 90s and really got a big boost when this young man named Hunter Scott, who when he started this journey was only 11 years old, Hunter Scott reached out to the survivors because he needed a topic for his school history fair project. Well, it turned out that when he wrote them or called them, a lot of them then began to speak about the disaster for the first time to this little 11-year-old boy. So fast forward a couple of years, and a congressman named Joe Scarborough, who is now you know, a commentator on MSNBC, uh, at that time, he was Hunter's family's congressman. He took notice of the project, and he decided to help fight for the exoneration of Captain McVeigh, and he wrote a resolution in Congress. That measure failed, but then enter another man, 
Captain William J. Toady, who was the skipper of Indianapolis's namesake submarine, he joined the fight too. So all three parties together, the, the survivors pushing for all those decades, then the providential entry of Hunter Scott, and then Captain Toady ultimately resulted in the exoneration of Captain McVeigh in 2001. Um, yes, 2001. Now you said Captain McVeigh took his own life. What happened? Um, at this point, I mean, it was 1968, so, you know, this is 13 years after the sinking of the ship. But, you know, he was no longer in the Navy. He was, um, I believe, selling insurance. Um, and he was, he his wife, his second wife, who was what many said was the love of his life, had passed away. And he had remarried, and perhaps not the happiest marriage he'd had. Um, that combined with, you know, the burden of this loss. But also the families, you know, having McVeigh being the one the finger was pointed at, the families would then write him letters constantly for years, every Christmas, every birthday of the the son or the brother that they lost saying, you know, hope you're enjoying your Christmas. We're not, you know, our son isn't here to enjoy it with us. And those, those piled up and, you know, he... There were a lot of other circumstances surrounding this and speculation, but really it seemed like the burden of that caught up to him. And in 1968, he took his life. What got you guys involved in this and why did you decide to, to, you know, to write this book? Well, the way I got involved was that I had literally been praying for an iconic World War II story to write. I had written a couple of books that did quite well, um, Heaven is for Real, Same Kind of Different as Me. And I, as a military veteran, I had also done some war books, and I just really felt that God laid it on my heart to write a World War II story. Well, in 2011, I got a an email followed by a phone call from a young filmmaker named Sarah Vladek, and it turned out that Sarah had been in a relationship with the surviving crew at that time. Sarah, how many were there when you, how many living survivors were there when you got involved with them? I, well, I actually contacted them and started talking to them in 2001. And there, when I began all this, um, it was, I mean, there were 117 survivors still alive. And they invited me to one of their reunions in 2001 and that's when I started talking to them. And then um, eventually they kind of took me in like a family member and asked me to be their storyteller. So at the time I wanted to do it as a movie. And so um, I started interviewing them in 2005 to, in order to write the screenplay. And, you know, we took it to a major network where they said, this is the best thing we've seen since Band of Brothers but it needs to be based on a book. And so <laughs> we kind of did it backwards. Um, I didn't know how to write a book. I knew how to write screenplays, and that was the profession I was in by this time. And so I started reaching out to friends and family, and they you know, directed me to Lynn, who had come to and actually was a guest speaker at my mother-in-law's book club. And so you know, I reached out wanting advice. How do I write a book? How is it different than a screenplay? And that's kind of where we connected uh, in in terms of this being a book and going forward. So when she reached out to me, I uh, had, as I mentioned, I had been praying for a, an iconic World War II story. And, 
as I've said in, in past interviews, there is no, there may be World War II stories as iconic as Indianapolis, but none more so. And so my problem, Mike, was that she just wanted advice. And I was thinking, you know, geez, I really want to do this book with her. But I, you know, stuck with advice until the conversation just naturally, you know, got around to our possibly working together. And so we agreed to do that in about 2012. And then I had some other projects on the front burner. Um, and then we started working in earnest on this in about 2014. Well, thank you for your work. The name of the book, Indianapolis, The True Story of the Worst Sea Disaster in U.S. Naval History and the 50-Year Fight to Exonerate an Innocent Man. Lynn Vincent, Sarah Vladek, thank you for being on Connors Thank you. Thank you so much. Believing that I didn't need God, I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Amelia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash Fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, a little over 100 years, there was a landmark film called Birth of a Nation. It, it was one of the favorite films of, at that time, President Woodrow Wilson, and it was about the founding, in effect, of the, the, the KKK. Today, we're having a documentary film coming out 
Death of a Nation. And the filmmaker and the author behind the book is with us now, Dinesh D'Souza. Welcome to Connor's Corner. Hey, thanks. Good to be on the show. Death of a Nation, what's it about? Well, it's really about the craziness that's going on in American politics now, a craziness that I don't think we have seen since 1860. Uh, In 1860, an outsider, a Republican, Lincoln, was elected. And uh, from the moment he was elected, all hell broke loose. Um, the Democrats would not accept the result of the election. Some Democrats in the North were calling for Lincoln to be assassinated. In the South, they said, hey, we're ready to break up the country rather than endure this man's presidency. So that kind of um, craziness that we saw in 1860 is back with us today, except now uh, the Trump presidency is, um, is being assaulted under the claims that Trump is a fascist, he's a racist. And so what I do in the, in the movie is I uh, examine closely the history and meaning of both fascism and racism, and I ask the question, where, is, where are the real fascists today, and where are the real racists today? And what's your conclusion? My conclusion is that if one is looking either for fascism and racism, not surprisingly, we find this on the left. I say not surprisingly because the Democratic Party has historically been the party of racism. I mean, historians don't even... Uh, deny this. In other words, that the Democratic Party was the champion of slavery, of segregation, of Jim Crow, of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, You notice you mentioned that it was Woodrow Wilson, a progressive Democrat, who showed the pro-Klan movie, Birth of a Nation, in the White House. The first film, by the way, ever shown in the White House led to a nationwide revival of the Klan. So this is the Democratic Party's history. And similarly, I show in the 20s and 30s, the Democratic Party was actually kind of in bed with the Italian fascists under Mussolini and to a lesser degree with the German fascists under Hitler. A lot of people would make the argument, hey, you're dealing about ancient history. You know, the Democratic Party changed. Well, first of all, the change is itself a little bit of a myth. And what I mean by that is there's this notion that the racist Dixiecrats, the kind of racists in the Democratic Party, all became Republicans. Uh, In the movie, I test this proposition by putting up the 150 Dixiecrats on the screen. You count them. There are their pictures. There are their names. And then I count how many of those guys moved over to the Republican Party. And it turns out two. One in the Senate, Strom Thurmond. One in the House, Albert Watson. And all the other Dixiecrats stayed and lived and died in the Democratic Party. So this notion that the party somehow traded platforms, you know, the cops became robbers and the robbers became cops, it really never happened that way. The South did, in fact, move into the Republican camp, but not because of race. That was due to the Reaganite agenda of anti-communism and patriotism and free markets and upward mobility, family values, pro-life. The, the whole Reaganite agenda was very appealing to the South, and so the South began to slide into the Republican camp. So what are you trying to get across to the public right now? You've done it very effectively in your past documentary films and, and books about the history of the Democratic Party and slavery. What new points are we trying to get across now? Well, one point I'm trying to get across is that if you're looking, you know, people will say things like Trump is a fascist. And they, they have great difficulty defining what they even mean by this. They'll say things like Trump doesn't believe in democracy. Uh, Trump is an authoritarian. But look, Trump is being slayed and, 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 and walked on every media platform every second of every day. Now, a real authoritarian would never put up with this. Certainly Mussolini wouldn't. He'd send a bunch of black shirts down to the New York Times and CNN, beat those people up, shut the place down in one day. Trump does none of that. Trump fights back, but he fights back on Twitter. He fights back with his public statements. So he's part of the give and take of American democracy. That There's nothing fascist about that. But 
these Antifa thugs roaming the campus, beating up conservative speakers, chasing Republicans off the campus, this use of the weapons of the government, I mean, the police agencies of the FBI, the IRS, um, using those against your political opponents. I mean, that was one of the defining features of fascism. I mean, one of Mussolini's points was that the fascist party in Italy is the state, and the same with the Nazis. The, the Nazi party is the government. So blurring the line between the party and the state is one of the hallmarks of, of fascism. Do you get into the fact you know about Planned Parenthood and the history of Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger? Well, I talk about the way in which the Nazis um, actually got some of their bigoted and even murderous schemes from American progressives and from the Democratic Party. Now, this is a, an untaught aspect of our history. I mean, I went to an Ivy League college. I had never heard of this. I have never learned it in school, never learned it in college. I've never seen it on the History Channel. But the truth of it is that there is an extensive documentation of the ways in which the Nazis, I mean, we had a show, a scene in the movie where the Nazis were drafting the Nuremberg laws, the laws that make Jews into second-class citizens. They're holding in their hands the democratic laws of the segregation of the South. They're literally crossing out the word black, writing in the word Jew. And you mentioned Margaret Sanger. There's no question that Nazi progressive eugenicists uh, passed the, the Nazi sterilization law of 1933, the Nazi euthanasia law of 1935. These were directly based on blueprints supplied by American progressives, including a bunch of people on Margaret Sanger's own board. I'm astounded sometimes that some African-Americans are so supportive, even though they may not know exactly what they're supportive of, of Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood. Well, they don't know the history. I mean, part of it, you pick up a Planned Parenthood brochure, you get a completely sanitized picture of Margaret Sanger. I mean, this is a woman in the 1930s who was giving speeches in defense of the Nazi sterilization program, who actually said, in effect, the Nazis are beating us at our own game. We in America need to speed things up because, you know, the Nazis are getting ahead of us. This is the actual Margaret Sanger. And when people say, well, Margaret Sanger believed in choice. No, Margaret Sanger no more believed in free choice than the Nazis did. The Nazis had an ideology, which is that in their view, racially superior people should have more children and people whom they considered inferior should have less children. And Margaret Sanger shared that philosophy 100%. I hope your point gets across. Dinesh D'Souza, good luck on Death of a Nation. Thank you very much. Okay, well, you know, I look forward to seeing the Dinesh D'Souza film. It's always very interesting. And, you know, listen, the guy's doing the best documentaries out there, so let's support him. It's important to hear all sides. Right. And, of course, he's had the courage of convictions because he went to jail for— Obama 2016. So, I know. I know. You know, so. uh, you know, we were talking earlier, you know, like about Robert Shaw. And, you know, he was such a great actor and whatever. And, you know, of course, Jaws is, I guess, the he one He makes film. Jaws. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Besides Jaws is himself, I think we, we go to watch him. Yeah. And what his soliloquy right there was written by John Milius, supposedly. Oh gosh! And I wish I wish we could get John Milius on the show, but I think well, we're having difficulty. Well, he had a stroke. He had a stroke. He and had a stroke, and I think he's a little nervous about it. But Milius, that's another thing. Apocalypse now. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Well, I think he understood war. Of course, you can't forget the Rough Riders. <laughs> with, with Sam Elliott, Tom Berengarian, and Pat Balsey and Michael. Oh my gosh! Not Michael Park. So. No. Um. <laughs> well, we yeah. Well, we have we have. Um, did we talk enough about our fun time in Gettysburg with the Custer people? No, I don't think so. 
we had a great time. We were in Gettysburg again, and yes, we did do um, some of the cavalry um, Hanover and uh, things I had never done when we were in Gettysburg, probably way too much. But I met, I'm sure we're related, related somehow, but a lady that's a Choctaw lady. And so we were taught, I'm part Choctaw, but it goes way no, I think back. you're getting into Elizabeth Warren territory right no, now. No, I'm you, not. You don't have any DNA testing <laughs> proof that you're part Choctaw. It's just family. Just uh, look legend. at my granddaddy. No, she confirmed absolutely everything that my granddaddy would tell me. My granddaddy taught me little dances mm-hmm. for crying out loud. But anyway, we had a good time. What made me think about it was the Behringer. Now, are we going to be going back to Gettysburg for something sometime? I think we will be because I think in October, October 13th, they're going to have the uh, showing of the movie Gettysburg at the Majestic Movie Theater in, in downtown Gettysburg or whatever because it's going to be the 25th anniversary. So... I'm looking forward to that. Now, the director's cut, Pat Fauci said it's a six-hour cut. I hope it's a little bit shorter than that. I can't sit for all that. That is way too long. But it is one of my favorite films, and, you know, and... and, and Which Tom Berenger is in, and Pat Fauci. (laughs) And Stephen Lang. And Stephen Lang. And I always said, uh, it is a great movie. It is long, but it is, I think that's one of my favorite all-time fame. They stuck to the facts. It is so frustrating to watch something. I mean, I don't think Lieutenant Chamberlain was uh, with with Armistead at the. Uh, that was close enough. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that was close. What about Cheyenne Autumn for crying out loud? No, I was which... on today. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, David Kincaid is something. I don't know what we're going to say about Cheyenne Autumn, except Patrick <laughs> Wayne was in it. Hooray! And George O'Brien. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> To sing this soul away. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.